1: There is real misogyny or chauvinism might be the word, but I don't believe that complementarianism
0: causes that. I believe sin in the hearts of people causes that. She assumes the terms of our modern culture and then Mm -hmm. reads out of the text modern conclusions that aren't actually in the text.
1: Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. If you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe and be sure and click that bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video, because we have so many amazing conversations coming up for you. I don't want you to miss anything. Today, we're going to be reviewing a book called The Making of Biblical Womanhood by Beth Allison. Bar. Now, this book has been quite popular. I've had a lot of emails about it, people asking my opinion. So I read it, and I had my friend Diana Williams read it. And we're going to talk through those ideas through the book together. And basically, the book argues that the view of complementarianism is linked with abuse. Now, that's a bold claim. If you're new to the complementarian versus egalitarian debate and discussion, this is basically a difference that Christians have over the role of of men and women in the church and in the home. So just broadly speaking, the complementarian view would say that men and women are both made in the image and likeness of God, and because of that have equal dignity, value, and worth, but they have different roles to play in the church and in the home. Now, the egalitarian view starts off the same. Men and women are both created in the image of God, and because of that uh, have inherent dignity value and worth, so they're, this, they're equal in that sense, but they're also equal, equal or interchangeable, according to the egalitarian view, in their roles in the church and in the home. Now, there's tons of nuance as you trickle down from those basic uh, summaries, and I do want to commend to you, if you're watching this and you're interested in more about that, Mike Winger over at Bible Thinker is doing a tremendously deep dive into the arguments of complementarian versus egalitarian. Highly recommend him to you. He's about uh, four videos in, I think, of maybe what's going to end up being a nine or 10-part series. So definitely go to Mike Winger's YouTube page. You can also go to his podcast, The Bible Thinker, and you can access the videos that he's already released and subscribe so you can get the next ones. Um, But So just to lay a little foundation for this Beth Alison Barr book, I, I mentioned that the main thesis of her book seems to be that the view of complementarianism, which is the idea that men and women, although equal in value and worth, but but different in their roles to play in the home and the church, uh, she links that with abuse. And I mentioned that's a bold claim. And so I want to give receipts for that. I'm going to read a quote from near the end of her book where she says this, evidence shows me that just because complementarianism uses biblical texts doesn't mean it reflects biblical truth. Evidence shows me the trail of sin and destruction left in the wake of teachings that place women under the power of men. And then a little bit later, she says, we can no longer deny a link between complementarianism and abuse. So this takes the debate to a slightly different level because previously you would have complementarians and egalitarians debating sort of in-house as Christians, hey, we're going to agree to disagree on what the texts are saying here. Uh, But but now she's saying, no, not only do we disagree with complementarianism, but we actually think it's leading to abuse. And so that is something that we want to interact with today. I'm going to introduce you to my friend, Diana Newman. Actually, Diana was one of my first podcast guest i think diana the the podcast you joined me for for feminism in the bible was maybe my third or fourth podcast ever so i'm so glad to have you back tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do
0: well, so uh, first and foremost, um, I'm a mommy. <laughs> I'm a mommy. And I say first and foremost because that's pretty important to me. Uh, to a three-year-old, uh, I'm a wife. I am a, a former student. I now uh, work at the seminary that I graduated from. Um, but over and above that, I'm just, I, I'm concerned with the ways that people think about things. And I'm concerned with the ways that those thoughts affect how we live as Christians primarily. Well, and I love your
1: analytical and apologetics mind, which um, tell us about the seminary that you work at, because I talk about it all the time because it's my favorite seminary. But go ahead and tell us about it. (laughs)
0: Sure, I work at Southern Evangelical Seminary. Uh, there I am an admissions counselor at this school. I'm a graduate of the school as well. Um, I did a master's degree in both apologetics and philosophy there. Um, so so that's my connection uh, with the school. It's a great apologetic school um, for anyone who is interested um, in being taught how to think well and critically about things.
1: Yeah, and so I SES is um, really the only seminary that I wholeheartedly. Uh, commend to people without any disclaimers. That's that's where I study. I'm actually currently a student at SES, getting my certificate mm-hmm. in philosophy. Yes. <laughs> so I'm excited about that. Uh, so let's start with maybe some initial thoughts about the book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. I know that these topics that have to do with feminism, patriarchy, women in the Bible are things that you have spent quite a bit of time thinking through. So what are your general thoughts of the book? Uh, is there anything, you know, we want to start off by you know, being charitable here and say, is there anything positive that we can take away from this book? Is there anything we can learn from this book that is beneficial?
0: Uh, Yeah, I I think so. I think that there are some uh, redeeming values in the book. Obviously, we're going to discuss things that we don't agree with or things that we would uh, critique. But I, I would say that her book highlights in a good way Uh, the ways in which we do modern church today and and the way that we do church today, not all the time are we doing the things that are found in scriptures to be true, right? So the ways in which we structure church, the ways in which we see church, um, its importance to us, isn't necessarily Um, similar to the ways that the first century uh, would have understood those things. Uh, I think that her book highlights the need to make distinctions between chauvinism and complementarianism, right? So we have to make those distinctions and we have to be able to say that Um, Christians get it wrong sometimes, leaders get it wrong sometimes, but even in their getting it wrong, that is a completely separate issue from what the text actually teaches. So we have to have those um, discussions that maybe are hard discussions and that maybe pop our bubbles Mm -hmm. in terms of of what we think the modern church is. But we ought not to assume that the ways that we're doing modern church today are exactly one to one. Um, in, in in terms of what Paul instructed or what he taught or even what the first few centuries of the church did.
1: That's good. And then so with that laid out, kind of the, the positives that we can learn from, what, what are your initial thoughts? So like just overarching view, what's your summary of your basic thoughts as you're reading through this book? You know, what were you thinking
0: Well, it it was just apparent to me that her scholarship, her scholarship as a medieval scholar, definitely colors the way in which she interprets certain passages of the Bible, right? So um, I would even venture to say that her adoption of certain um, uh, premises that come out of the feminist movement and feminist ideology, those premises she has a tendency to read into the text Mm. and um, completely, I think, subvert uh, Paul's teachings, Paul's intentions, Paul's words. I don't think that she does the necessary job of defining her terms well. Um, she assumes the terms of our modern culture and then mm. reads out of the text modern conclusions that aren't actually in the text. I think that, as a historian, she's been taught to do that. I think that she has been steeped in uh history and in anthropology and and in, in sociology um, but the Bible is a theological text right the the Bible has um, instructions given to us that are meant to form us into the type of people that God wants us to be. And so we can't merely go into the text and read out of it what might be instructive from a historical perspective or from a sociological perspective. God actually expects that once we read the text, we le- live in the type of way that that mirrors what he has instructed us um, To live, and so it's it is a historical book, but it's not merely historical. There's something more um, pressing that we need to get from it than just a mere historical analysis. It's interesting that you would
1: notice the emphasis on sociology, anthropology, um, history, because I, I did an episode recently with Neil Shenvey about what's sort of emerging as being called the Evangelical Deconstruction Project, and this book was a part of that. And mm. essentially, Neil's observation, as he's, he read this book and several others that are kind of connected in the same web. And he noted almost exactly what you just said, that it's the conclusions that people are making to identify what authentic Christianity is or how Christians should live is not based in Scripture in these books. It's actually based in things like history and sociology. That becomes more the authority rather than going to the text of Scripture. So that's interesting that you would notice that. I think my overarching just kind of initial thoughts about the book is, A, um, I do want to say something positive as well because... I'm always reading books I disagree with. I just think that's that's something for me and my work. That's something I have to be doing. So I'm, sure. I wouldn't necessarily call this a progressive Christian book, but I'm always reading at least one progressive Christian book. And I would say that this book sort of leans in that direction, maybe not all the way there, but it leans that way. But with that said, I, I'm— I'm thankful for her organization because <laughs> when you read a lot of these progressive books, it's very mushy. You, you, you're, you're not sure what point they're trying to make. Um, they're asking a lot of questions to kind of make you think certain things. But what I appreciated about her is that she's basically like, here's my thesis. Here are sure. my arguments. Here's my conclusion. And then here's, I'll say it again. Here's what I want you to take away from this book. And I right. really appreciate that because that gives me a very clear place to start. I don't have to guess what she's trying to make me believe because sure. often with progressive books, that's the first. You have to kind of guess, like, where where are they wanting me to land and it's sort of hard to parse that way. So this was very clear. And so, you know, we may not end up agreeing with her conclusion, but I can certainly appreciate the clarity sure. with which she's written it. She's very clear about what yes. she's arguing for. And then yeah. she brings, you know, lots of different streams of as evidence Um as far as those streams of evidence, I think the thing that was frustrating me as I read through the book is that, granted, there was some biblical interaction, but really not mm-hmm. a ton. There was mostly arguments from history. And so what it seemed like to me is she'd say, you know, here's, here's what I'm trying to argue for, and then here's this woman in history that broke stereotypes, really? and here's another exception. And she would pick out these kind of cool women from church history and talk about, what they did and what they accomplished and the people sure. around them that accepted what they were doing as if that's an argument for us accepting those same things today or, uh, or something along those lines. And so when you get through the whole book, it almost feels like for all of church history, women have been made major leaders Rock in the church. Rock stars. Yeah. Rock right. stars. yeah. yeah. Right. And right. we're just now trying to close that door and oppress women and, Um, And it's a little, I think it's a little bit of a bait and switch because certainly you can fill a book with women from history who were, you know, did cool things and were awesome people and broke stereotypes and maybe were the exceptions to the rule. But if that's all you're talking about, it can feel like
0: that was the dominant thing throughout history. So it was a little bit tricky that way, I think. Yeah, I agree with you. And I also would go further and say that it's a little bit disingenuous, to be honest with you, because for a couple of things. It is absolutely true that women were very active um, throughout church history. If you go to Romans 16, which is one of the places that she lands on as well, um, Paul is very clear that women were necessary to the ministry and instrumental in the spreading of the gospel and so from the New Testament text all the way up into early church Christian history, women um, had very very active roles in the church. That's granted at no time in history was was a woman ever a leader of the Christian community. there are no accounts of women being apostles or elders which is which is, her conclusion that because Mm -hmm. women were so active, they necessarily had to be leaders in the Christian community. So it's a little bit of just ingenuity that way. Um, I would also say that the fact that women are no longer as active as they used to be um, in the church is really more a symptom of the way that we're doing modern church this way uh, uh, today. So um, The fact is that today when we think of ministry, we think of something that has to be done in church, Mm -hmm. that you have to have a title or you have to have a job description or you have to have a certain amount of status in order to minister um, in the church today. And that's a that's a modern invention. Right. So um, she is critiquing rightly so, the ways in which we're doing modern church, but that critique doesn't necessarily get her to the conclusion that women used to be leaders and women used to be apostles. Yeah. It just means that women, um, generally speaking, were better, um, were better in their responsibilities as far as what it meant to be a Christian person. Yeah, so can we can, can we talk about
1: yeah? Can we talk about female apostles? Because <laughs> this is something <laughs> that really it's it's sort of a pet peeve of mine. Um, a lot of people just come out and claim, "Hey, there's this female apostle in the Bible named Junia," mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. this is, I mean, there's major internet platforms dedicated to this. A lot of even, you know people that I would consider brothers and sisters in Christ, of course, who are going to say, yeah, there's this female apostle, but there's a lot of debate about that. And that's coming from Romans 16, 7.
0: Mm-hmm. And it
1: says, greet Andronicus and Junia, or some translations say Junius, my relatives who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. So a lot of assumptions are made, basically mm-hmm. assuming that Junia is female. Uh, in fact, John Christoph in the fourth century uh, noted that uh, he talked about this and many of him, him and his contemporaries actually thought that was a masculine name. So, you know, it could be a female, a feminine name, but even if it is, it doesn't even say that the Andronicus
0: and Junius were apostles. They were outstanding among the apostles. They were known to the apostles because of their prominence in the Christian community. Right? Yeah. So
1: so I don't think there's any reason to say outright, oh, well, we have this example of a female apostle, therefore women were these leaders, because there's, there's so much debate over that. It's it's not rock, a rock solid case at all. Not at like.
0: all. Um, grammatically, uh, the gender of that person, or I should say the sex of that person, it could go either way, really. The name can literally go either way. And so there are many... Um, uh, translations that we and versions of the Bible that we have today, some of them say Junia and some of them say Junius, and, and that's proper because really the name can be, go either way. Um, in no translation will it outright be said that they were apostles. We know who the apostles were, mm-hmm. um, they were the 12, right? And when there were 11 apostles, the 12th person that they got. It was not open for a woman to be an apostle. All of the apostles throughout church history um, have been understood to be men. Were women ministers? Were they carriers of the gospel? Were they preachers according to what the definition meant back then? Yes, they were, but at no time um, uh, whether in the the text itself, or whether we're talking about early church history, at no time has a woman habited the position of apostle. And so, it's not enough to to make an argument for that based on grammar. Yeah, um, it, it's not enough to make that argument. That doesn't get you to the conclusion. Especially as you rightly point out that um, translations will say it differently. But the point is, is that they were prominent among the apostles and that they were in Christ before Paul was.
1: Yeah. So let's lay one more little foundation piece here. Um, I know we were talking a little bit before we went on the air about the words complementarianism and egalitarianism. So I'd love to know your thoughts on those words and and um, and then we'll kind of get into some of the material in the book.
0: Sure. Yep. So I would completely agree with your definitions of of the words that you've used. I think that's an adequate and that's a general definition. But I also want to say that I push back from using labels as much as is possible. It's, it's necessary to use certain labels if we're going to have uh, discussions and carry on interactions with people—it just would be very impractical to have to define something every time that we're wanting to talk about it. So, so labels are useful. However, labels are also restricting. Um, labels assume that everyone who is under the label thinks the same things and has the same rationale for thinking the same things. I also want to say, particularly when it comes to complementarianism and egalitarianism, that's a modern invention, right? So by and large, the labels are a result of feminist thought coming into the church and the church finding a way to push back against it and out come these labels, generally speaking, called complementarianism and egalitarianism. Paul, um, the New Testament writings, the early church, they would not ascribe those labels for themselves. They would say that the instructions given in the New Testament text are clear and whether they come under a certain label or not is isn't the issue. It's actually the instructions themselves that have to be adhered to and not necessarily maligning one label against the other label. Those are modern day squabbles that I think that we get caught in and we, we have um, these in-house discussions and disputes that at the end of the day aren't found in the text.
1: So let's talk about patriarchy, because this is a huge theme that's woven throughout the book. And you noted earlier that there's sort of these cultural definitions that she's importing. And uh, you mentioned in an email to me that she effortly exchanges the word patriarchy with words like authority and submission. And because, I mean, submission is good in many contexts, but it's over over you know the the course of the book it's really painted in a negative light words like subordination and hierarchy again hierarchy is important for order hierarchy is not a bad thing but it's painted in the book almost like any kind of hierarchy is is overly negative do you want to comment on that a little bit i know that you've you've done a lot of work thinking about patri- patriarchy so
0: <laughs> yeah so So the word that we have in English, subordination, it really is the word that's most accurate to what Paul was using um, in the Greek apostasio. Literally, the word subordination is, is what captures what Paul meant best. However, the way that we define subordination today, that definition is something completely foreign to Paul's use of the term and of the word. And so um, when Beth Allison Barr or when others like her, when they see the word submission or subordination um, or those sorts of things over or under are another kind of triggering words as well, um, automatically there's this tendency to use the 21st way, 21st century way of understanding those words and importing it to Paul. And I don't think that that is a legitimate thing to do for, for many different reasons at no time in her book. um, And this was interesting to me at no time in the book that she actually defined what subordination is. Mm. She just assumed that her definition and her understanding of, of subordination is what Paul meant. And I think that the details matter because if you are using um, the 21st century way of thinking, then you can only come out with patriarchy, right? But if you use Paul's way of understanding that word and, and take into account his interests and his goals and his consideration, subordination is actually the type of thing that gets the community to live in a world that's anti to Christ, but live in such a way as, as to where um, the Christian message and life can be propagated throughout, throughout the world. The better question is to ask, what did um, Paul actually mean when he spoke about submission? What did his hearers understand um, by what he meant with submission? And is there any evidence um, in the early church years that they understood submission to mean what we think that it means Mm. today? Mm. Right. So we, we can't we just can't make those assumptions. Um, in Ephesians 5 and, and per- perhaps we'll we'll get to this a little bit later um, in Ephesians 5 when she talks about the household codes in Ephesians 5:21 5, Ephesians 522 uh, she makes a great um, she makes a great deal of Ephesians 5:21 as if Ephesians 5:21 teaches that husbands are to submit to their wives as well. Um, And she totally negates um, the rest of the relationships that Paul highlights in that same chapter. So we have the relation, the ways that wives should relate to husbands, the ways that husbands should relate to wives, the ways that children should relate to parents, and the ways that um, masters and slaves uh, should relate to one another. And I'll just briefly stop here and say that slavery in Ephesians 5 was not based on race. So um, the Romans did not enslave people based on the content of their melanin. Their yeah. melanin. Yeah. That just not, it's happen. not like the, the chattel slavery in America here. That that's right. That's right. But she, instead of using 521 as a way of Um, talking about the social relationships in the world. She does a little bit of a... and switch, or she does a little bit of um, linguistic gym- gymnastics, as if to say that men too, or, or husbands too, are called to submit to their wives. I was thinking about it in, in another sense. So when it comes to uh, the children, um, the children passage, and specifically when, when Paul says submit to one another, I was thinking, well, what does this mean in the, in the passage with children and parents? And it just hit me that there are definitely ways in which I submit myself to my three-year-old child, right? When I am doing something that's very important and I tell him to not get into trouble, right? If he gets into trouble, I realize that in order to form his character and to give him a teachable um Uh, moment and to kind of instill certain things into him, I have to submit what I want to do put what I want to do aside, lay it down and attend to my son, because it's better for my son that I teach him certain things about listening and responsibility. It's better for him to learn those things now than for me to continue doing what I want to do. That is an element of submission, right? So submission isn't the sort of thing that is deleterious to a community, to a a unit, to a family, to a community. It's not deleterious. It's actually necessary if you're going to pass certain values on within the social community. And if you're going to order yourself well, there has to be a level of mutual submission. That's just just a sociological truth, that there needs to be clear um, roles and responsibilities in any social um, grouping for that grouping to uh, exist and to persist. And even when you go back before, you know, Ephesians five, if you go through four and you go through um, all of the instructions that Paul is giving, he says, love one another. Don't be angry with one another. Do good to one another. All of these things that are necessary for the people of God who are now living a new Christian life. But there's something that he means more, more deeply than just that when he says, wives, submit to your husbands. Mm. When he says, husbands, love your wives. He means something more deeply than the general instructions that he gives previously.
1: Okay. Let's camp here for a little while because I I definitely wanted to hit on the, the couple of biblical arguments that she does give because to me, honestly, the, the trip down, you know, church history lane is is not really relevant to what I'm going to land on believing as far as what the Bible says about what my role is as a woman in my church and in my home. Uh, it's, it's always interesting. I think we can learn a lot from church history. I'm a big advocate of learning church history. But ultimately, as you said, what matters is what Jesus and the apostles passed down, how those earliest believers— you know, applied that and understood it. Of course, the, even the early church fathers are not infallible. They're not inerrant. Sure. They certainly did have uh, problematic views on some things without question. Sure. But what we need to go to is, is is Jesus and the apostles. Like, what did Paul mean? What was he trying to communicate? And of course, as Christians, we believe that both Old and New Testaments are divinely inspired by God, that these are inerrant, they are without error. And so we are fallible in our understanding of those things sometimes, but our goal should be to get to what was being communicated by the original author. And I do want to take a moment here and make a comment on postmodernism because uh, I I think this book and along with some others that are Sort of in that, like I mentioned before, that evangelical deconstruction project, there's a bit of postmodern text deconstruction going on in these in these books. Now, a lot of people in the deconstruction movement will not acknowledge that they're influenced by people like Jacques Derrida or Foucault mm-hmm. or some of those postmodern thinkers. Mm-hmm. But I've, I, I have been researching quite a bit on this because I'm currently writing a book on it, and I've talked with really high-level philosophers, and I've met with people in the deconstruction space, and it is very clear to me that there is Derridian deconstruction happening with words in these mm-hmm. circles. And so uh, that's something that, for for our purposes today, what people need to understand is that according to that Derridian deconstruction, as it relates to text, and, and relate this with the Bible when I say this, for Derrida, words couldn't be pinned down to singular meanings. So, be, you know, how that sort of flowered out was that the intent of the author had no more authority for the meaning than the hearer's or the reader's interpretation. So we have to understand that, that we cannot approach the text that way, because that wouldn't be fair. I mean, Diana, that would be like me hearing what you're saying and saying, oh, well, Diana just said that, you know, uh, apples are purple. And you're like, I didn't say that. And I said, well, it, your, the, you have no more authority over the meaning of what you just said than I do as the hearer. And that's just not a good way to do communication. It's logically fallacious. And so I just wanted to uh, make that point for people who are listening because there's a lot of that going on. And it all has to do with words, the redefinition of words, using words in different ways that are different than the author intended. So the the question that we got to get to today is... Mm-hmm. What did Paul mean to communicate, and what's really interesting, Diane, I have a um, a quote here highlighted. So we're saying, and I agree with you, we're saying that we think she's taking modern words and importing them into Paul, but she kind of thinks that's what we're doing. So I want to acknowledge that. So here's a quote from her. She said, so here's my question for complementarian evangelicals. What if you're wrong? What if evangelicals have been understanding Paul through the lens of modern culture instead of the way Paul intended to be understood? and then she goes on the evangelical church fears that recognizing women's leadership will mean bowing to cultural peer pressure. So let's just take this Ephesians 5 verse. I'm going to read some of it for anyone who's unfamiliar. I'll start in verse 20 and I'll go through just to give us some good context. And then I want us, us to talk about the interpretation that she's presenting. And and then let's get to the bottom of if that's really what Paul was intending to communicate. So Mm -hmm. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 20, says, "...giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ." He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And I think anybody that gives this a fair reading can see how pro-woman this is. I mean, right. this is commanding men to love your wife like how you take care of your, your own body. All you men who are in the gym for two hours a day, and and the you know, same type, type of commitment. It's yeah. a deep commitment to make yeah. sure she is nourished and that you cherish her, that she's flourishing. And all we tend to read is wives submit to your own husband as to the Lord, and then we just say, "I hate that."
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think that she makes this point. Um, in in the book and in, in a certain sense she makes the point that we tend to focus on 522 and we don't focus on 523 which is a, a, a good observation yeah. but that doesn't still get you to your conclusion the only thing that you can conclude from that is that we need to pay more attention to Ephesians 523 that's the only thing that you can conclude right but there's a certain sense in which like you said before she is importing her modern day understanding of what sub- submitting yourselves means into the, the text without actually, um, having an eye to understand what Paul is actually saying. So if you go through, um, like I said before, Ephesians four, it's teaching the new community of believers how to live as Christians, brothers and sisters. Um, Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Be kind to one another. um, uh, Esteem other people. Put others' interests before your own selves. And so Paul goes through um, quite clearly on how the new brothers and sisters in Christ should order their lives with each other in community. Then he gets to, and let me, sorry, let me just say this as well. It, It doesn't do well to make an argument based on verses and chapters because Paul didn't use verses and chapters. Those were later additions to the text, uh, probably beginning at the 13th century or so. Um, chapters were introduced and verses even later on. So for her to kind of use Ephesians 21 in distinction from 22 as an argument for something, again, is a portrayal, is a, is a betrayal, I think, um, of what Paul Paul wants us uh, to receive. It's, it's absolutely true that Ephesians 5 and 22 is very um, honoring to women, if you use the right co- definition of submission, I would argue. Um, but it also places responsibilities on men that, again, are for the betterment of not only the women, but the family, but the community, but the, 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 the community of believers, right? So There are just so many things that we have to be cognizant of. So when we're thinking about the first century, we're thinking about traditional society, um, classical society, if you will. When we're thinking about our modern day society, we're thinking about technological society, two completely different value systems, two completely different ways of thinking about um, social order consequently social rules two different ways of thinking about status two different ways of thinking you you name it we just are caught in a period of history where we are far removed from the importance and the weight of certain concepts that we find um, in the New Testament scripture. And so that's what makes it more necessary for us as modern day believers to understand what Paul is saying, not understand what feminist ideologies say, not understand what um, cultural movements are saying, not understand what, what's going on in the academy. We We have to understand what Paul meant because again, God is going to hold us accountable to the way in which we ordered our lives based on the instructions that he gave us to order our lives, right? So um, I don't think that it does any good to trample the instructions given for the sake of upholding to ideas and premises that themselves aren't biblical. Yeah. Now, she calls Ephesians 5,
1: and this has been argued by she's not the only one to argue this. Uh, Rachel Held Evans had argued this, but uh, I'll read uh, Beth Allison Barr's uh, interpretation here of Ephesians 5. She says, likewise, Ephesians 5 can be read as a resistance narrative to Roman patriarchy. Many scholars argue that Paul subordinates his entire discussion of the household co- household codes under verse 21, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. When this verse is read at the beginning of the Ephesians household codes, it changes everything. I, I don't really see that. I don't see how it changes everything personally at all. It but doesn't. that's kind of the point she's making is that Paul yeah. in some way is— is that's the main point he's trying to make and then oh yeah and all this other stuff too or something it's very kind of difficult to understand exactly what she's saying but I do want to notice some language she uses here she says instead of underscoring the inferiority of women as if she's I think what that's meaning is that that's what complementarians do is they're underscoring the inferiority as if a different role this is so important as if a different role means inferior that is not right. at all what what the Bible says at all. The Bible never presents women as inferior in any sort of value, dignity, or worth category. and this is where it's so important to define terms because if you if if you talk about my husband and I, um, in the realm of physical strength, I am going my physical strength is inferior to his um, sure. but his ability to instinctively know what our kids need is inferior to mine, but right. neither one of those means that we are inferior in dignity, value, and worth to each other. But there's an implication here in this wording that the, the, the view, you know, and again, I know we don't love the labels, but it's helpful to use them sure. so we can yes. understand what we're talking about. Complementarians are not saying that women are inferior to men in, in any sense of worth or value, but that's the implication is that that is what complementarians teach.
0: Absolutely, and it also, in in a certain way, the labels, <laughs> the label egalitarianism, is a response to the idea that that women are intellectually inferior, or that women are incapable, or that women are lesser people than men. But that's never been a, a Christian. Argument that's never been something that uh, um, the 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 Old Testament has affirmed that that women are less than human or that women aren't capable or that um, women are intelligent so are unintelligent so she uses that that verse and that rationale to argue something that has never been argued before, Mm. right? So when you go through her book and you read, um, yes, women can minister. Yes, women have voices to speak. Yes, women can do that. I was responding and saying, yeah, I know they always have. Why is that new, right? So Mm -hmm. I think it's also a commentary on biblical literacy, Mm. Never mind um, church history, it's also a commentary on biblical literacy to be surprised that the Bible contains things that it has always contained, right? So when she starts um, talking about Romans 16, there was an experience of her teaching um, uh, her class and there was a female student that, that said, why have I never seen this before in Romans 16? And the reason you haven't seen it is because you've never read Romans 16, because it's always been there, right? So it's true that the church and that people, they cherry pick what they want to read and what they want to park on, but that is not the same thing as saying that the Bible teaches certain things. It's just that you haven't read it. It has always been the case that Romans 16 has contained the names of women that were necessary to Paul's ministry. It's always been there. Mm -hmm. Um, And the fact that someone is surprised today, um, Says something else other than the point that Beth Barr makes. Yeah, so when she talks about um resistance
1: narratives let's talk a little bit about that because I suspect that'll be persuasive for a lot of people when they're thinking oh Paul was using these rhetorical devices that were well known this idea of, of a resistance narrative to Roman patriarchy in other words so let's talk a little bit about that Roman culture that Christians found themselves in in that first century and how um, she's she's sort of making the case that what Paul and in a way you know I don't know if I would call it a resistance narrative to Roman patriarchy because Paul was speaking from the mouth of God this is God's word breathed out through him, but there is a sense in which what he was teaching was extremely countercultural to what the the tip the typical norms were. Like I'll give one example, and then I'll let you give some, which you probably know a lot more about this than I do. But you know, if you look at that first century Roman context, just the sexuality of of that first century Roman uh, empire, um, men were not expected to be faithful to their wives. Uh, men, it was sort of expected that women were going to be. Sleeping with uh, other men, they were going to be. You know, uh, there was a lot of pedera- pederasty, even abusive contexts of a homosexual practice, where a, a conquered mm-hmm. uh, soldier would be, you know, sexually assaulted or molested by the the officer who had won the battle. There was yeah. things like that going on. In fact, if you look at some of the pottery, I don't recommend this, but if you look at some of the pottery that people just had on their tables, it would it was very pornographic. It was very norms of just the, the basic, you know, culture. But in Roman culture, women were not allowed to do that. Then women were expected to be faithful to their husbands. You, you couldn't yeah. do that if you're a woman. So here comes Paul basically saying, Actually, I'm holding men to the same standard that women have been held to in this culture. Actually, men, you can't go do all this other stuff that that you're allowed to do. So in that sense, there is a resistance to what was being taught in culture. Um, But then where she goes from there, I kind of have a problem with.
0: Yeah, I think that you're right. It's good to make the observation that Paul is resisting um, what was normal uh, in that time but it's another claim to use that resistance as a hermeneutic mm-hmm. <laughs> now you're doing something completely different because now you're tampering with the meaning that paul was actually trying to convey so there's no there was no reason given as to why we must res, why we must read the text as resistance narrative perhaps that's true for um, for other scholars and literary um, literary scholars who are looking at classical texts, perhaps it's proper in the field of a history to, to read certain things um, uh, from that vantage point. But there's no reason to think that we should use resistance narratives as a hermeneutic to mm-hmm. understand Paul. At the end of the day, Paul lived in Rome. He was um, Rome, Roman by citizenship, but he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? Mm -hmm. And so he imbibed um, all of the things that we see in the Old Testament text when it comes to God making man um, in his image, male and female, he made them. Um, He was very familiar with... um, the Old Testament examples that we see of women in in positions of influence and and teaching and all of those sorts of things. So yes, Paul was located in Rome, but to say that he's writing the text to Christians as resistance narratives to the Roman way of life is not substantiated when we're having a theological discussion. Maybe it's relevant in in your historical um, analysis, but it's improper for a theological consideration.
1: Right, because if you even think about how we live in culture now, as Christians, we should be speaking the truth no matter where culture is going. We're not going around saying, oh, culture's saying this, so we got to say the opposite. Or this. Right. No, we're just going to speak the truth. And sometimes right. that's going you know, to be the opposite of where culture is at. But the goal is not to just follow culture, but it's to speak truth. And I think, too, there's a bit of a conflation here. Um, even if we use the word resistance, Paul, just because he's correcting the sexual norms— the behavioral norms of sexuality doesn't mean that he's also saying patriarchy is evil right just because the culture was you know had the idea that that men would be in in some somehow in the hierarchy higher up paul was saying the sexual norms are wrong but she's conflating maybe the correction of that with saying, well, he's also resisting the idea of, of patriarchy by saying they
0: should submit to each other. And I just, I think that's a stretch. The patriarchy that she is fighting against, that she notices and that she recognizes is something that is not affirmed in the biblical text. Right. So even if you notice it, if even if even if you say that Paul is reacting to the Roman paterfamilias, even if you say that you still then have to deal with Ephesians 5 and 22. And so she makes a point of of highlighting what 521 says and what 523 says, but she never really gets into what does 522 really mean to the community of believers who have been formed under the unity of the gospel message what does five twenty two mean how does it play a role in the formation of a Christian community that is changing the world from the mere uh, acceptance that they have been saved right mm-hmm. what does it she never she never really addresses that instead she just kind of assumes that we can ignore 522 and that the church has abused 522 and that we need to rethink 522 and she never actually says what Paul meant by tw- in 22
1: that's true she doesn't um
0: so any other thoughts on Ephesians
1: before we move to first Corinthians
0: um no I, I just think that that's it that we we need to we need to be cognizant of the fact that uh chapters and verses they were added later mm-hmm. that Uh, Paul's intention was to give instructions in a holistic way and that you can't necessarily uh, cut certain things apart in the way that we have a tendency to do today and think that we're going to get the whole understanding of something. Um, And and like you said before, I don't think that 5 and 21 is the linchpin of her argument, right? Because if you understand that 5, 5 and 21, 521, 522 verses weren't used by Paul... Okay so we'll affirm that verses weren't used by Paul. Now what is the argument? Right? Yeah. So if we get rid of verse 21, if we get rid of all of the numbers, how how responsible is it to read verse 23 by first skipping 22 and then going to 21 mm-hmm. and then saying just just disregard 22? And just go to twenty-three. That that doesn't make sense. And I think too, though
1: the one point of her argument that just sort of fell flat for me was she was arguing that it was the modern Bible translation translators that tried to secure the patriarchy by separating those verses and then putting a little title between them. But that's meaningless. Like that doesn't meaningless. that's meaningless. They didn't take any words out. Even if they even if they mistakenly or purposely or whatever separated those into two different sections all the words are still there. And I think just on a base level, people, as we're reading the Bible, we all should know that when you see titles above the paragraphs, those were added later. The chapters They're and verses were added later. When modern right. study Bibles came out, they would separate things out. And you'll see those little titles. Those titles that you see are not part of the biblical text. And if right. people don't know that, um, then maybe I could see how her argument could be persuasive. If the church was saying, yeah, those titles, those are inerrant titles. Those are," But that's, I mean, I feel like that's a bit of a stretch to say that they're trying to uphold patriarchy with putting a title or separating those two verses into two different sections. I don't know. It just kind of fell flat for me. Yeah,
0: that's disingenuous, again, because she is very well aware of the fact that, that the titles and the verses and the chapters were added later. Um, She's also probably aware that many people don't know that. That's the only reason why you would make an argument that hinges on those sorts of things. It only works if people believe (laughs) Mm -hmm. that the headings and the numbers are inspired, but they aren't. So we can just grant that they are inspired. Okay, what does 522 mean? Right. And even when I say that, I have to use the number, right? Because <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. that's the only way that you'll know. But if yeah. you remove the numbers and you remove the headings, you are still left with trying to understand what Paul meant yeah. when he was speaking directly to wives. Good. All right. I want to move on to 1 Corinthians 14 because
1: I believe this is also something that I saw argued. In more progressive um, our, uh, auth- by more progressive authors, and I believe she even quotes some progressive authors in here and in their uh, interpretations of these things. But she wrote this. This is a First Corinthians 14. Let me go there so I can read that, um, so that everybody knows the context uh, of the verse that we're going to be talking about. So this is First uh, Corinthians 14, starting in. This is the good order for worship. And so this is starting in verse 34 says, Women should remain silent in churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. And then 36 says, or did God, the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the spirit, let them acknowledge what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Now here's how she frames this. She says, Paul was an educated Roman citizen. He would have been familiar with the contemporary rhetorical practices that corrected faulty understanding by quoting the faulty understanding and then refuting it. So essentially, what she is saying here is that what Paul is doing is saying basically like you've heard it said, but the truth is this part. when he says women should remain silent in the churches, what the argument is, is that he's actually quoting the false view there. And then he goes on in 36 to say, uh, you know, if anyone thinks a prophet or otherwise gifted, let them acknowledge that I'm writing to you as the Lord's command. In other words, saying that's not right that women should remain silent in churches, if I'm understanding her correctly, which is um, a very, very minority view. This is not, any, in any sense, the the any sort of a well-accepted interpretation. And I don't know, did you have
0: some thoughts on that? Yeah, um, there's some sense in which, in, in the same way that um, she uses an argument uh, from grammar for Ephesians five, it's almost as if she's using an argument from punctuation <laughs> to mm-hmm. drive mm-hmm. this certain point home. Right. So, so she does mention in her book that when she reads that passage to the class, she, um, adjusts her intonation and, yes. and all of those sorts of things.
1: Let me read that. So the people know, let me read that. So people know sure. because that sure. to me, I was just like, well, yeah, they're going to hear it that way. If you <laughs> say it like that. So she said, um, um, I do this often in a classroom exercise. I have a student read from their own translation, usually ESV or NIV. NIV is what I just read from. She says, okay. "Then I will read from the RSV." Now, again, I just want to—I want to point out right here: if you are looking for your pet translation to say it in the way that you like it to be said, that's a problem. I think it's a better idea if you're not Greek, if you don't speak Greek, if you don't read the Bible in its original language, consult several different. Uh, in uh, uh, translations yeah. to, to try to get to the spirit of it rather than just right. picking, because I, listen, we're all tempted to do that. I'm tempted to yeah. do that sometimes. Oh, I really <laughs> like the way this is said in the New Living, so I'm going to go with that one. But that's not, that's not the best way to get the full orbed understanding of what's being communicated. So I just Agreed. wanted to make that comment. But she says, then I will read from the RSV inflecting words appropriately. When I proclaim what, exclamation point, did the word of God originate with you? I can usually hear their gasp, their collective intake of breath, once a student exclaimed out loud, "Dr. Barr, that changes it completely." "Yes," I told her. "It does."
0: Yeah, I mean, it I does. feel like I'm that watching happens. somebody
1: deceive other people. It's so yeah. it's hard to read that.
0: Um, in Christian charity, obviously, in in our discussion, that is disingenuous. It isn't it isn't honest. Um there were no there were no punctuations there were very minimal <laughs> punctuations mm-hmm. in Greek, right so to use punctuation in that sort of way is is misleading um, and it also still doesn't actually address the text mm-hmm. right so it doesn't address what Paul actually says when she talk when he talks about um when he talks about did did all of this originate with like she doesn't get into she doesn't get into hermeneutics for the sake of understanding what paul means she delves as far as she needs to go in order to make the conclusions that she already brings to the text mm. right so that's just not a responsible way of of teaching the text and i would argue that even in inflecting your voice in that way There's still no clear demonstration Mm -hmm. (laughs) that women have ever. Um, been in, well, I can't say however, there's no clear demonstration that the New Testament text has women as leaders. There's no clear demonstration that for the first few centuries of church history that women were leaders in the Christian community. That is that is a modern dilemma, right? So there are a whole lot of things in her, in her book and in her critique that are modern dilemmas that deserve their own um, mention in their own discussion. Um, but they're very separate to the primary point of her book, which is that um, that submission is Christian patriarchy. That has to mm. be demonstrated. and has to be demonstrated well uh, linguistically. It has to be demonstrated hermeneutically. It has to be demonstrated, um, I would dare say, sociologically. And I think that it has to be demonstrated theologically.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned... That the earliest there's no sources in the earliest uh, Christian writings or the text of the Bible that women were leaders in the church, and yet she brings up a few, and I want to discuss those quickly. We're running out of time here, but we can talk. We'll we'll talk as long as we need to to get this done. But she says, um, and this this was just okay. I, I just want our our listeners and our viewers to imagine that you've never read this. In the Bible before. Because I think that is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a lot of people who perhaps have not actually read the New Testament for themselves. And so they're going to take her characterization of it as truth. Right. Um, So she says here, at the same time, we see a a surprising number of passages subverting traditional gender roles and emphasizing women as leaders. Now notice she's using that word leaders. From the Samaritan woman at the well giving Jesus a drink to Mary of Bethany learning at Jesus feet like a disciple to Martha declaring her faith in Jesus which counters the lack of faith exhibited by most of the disciples now anybody who knows the text knows that the Samaritan woman at the well was not the leader of anything no there's she was she was not like Pastor,
0: <laughs> she never became she, no, she didn't have a group of people that um went to her for uh instruction in <laughs> what it yeah. meant to be, right? Yeah, there's that reading in again, and it's also playing fast and loose, I think, with with terms. And so the term preaching, the term leader, the term authority, the word term teacher. Those are very different um, different words for us today than they were as used by Paul. The fact mm. that you proclaimed the gospel did not make you a leader of the Christian community. Right. It just made you a Christian. Right, because it, she got it's,
1: that it's, interaction with Jesus and then went and told everybody about it.
0: Yeah, but it's such a stretch her, to say
1: she was a leader because of that. It's just, it's foreign to the text. Yeah.
0: And that's born from this modern idea that we have, that in order to do anything productive in the system, you have to be a leader, Mm. you have to be in the four walls of a church, and you have to have a room full of people looking up to you as you lecture at them. Mm. That's modern. Even when um, throughout uh, medieval history, and even when we see um, women as leaders throughout throughout the, the classical period, they weren't filling out large stadiums and having rallies and evangelistic events. And therefore that's what it meant for them to be evangelists. And that's what it meant to, for them to be preachers. Right. Those are modern day understandings of of the tasks that we have, have ascribed to what it means to manifest Christianity. Um, the labels and the statuses and um, the acclaim that we make to certain positions today, I think are unbiblical, right? Mm-hmm. I think that um, we have a tendency to sanctify what is essentially Christian Hollywood, mm. right? These are the sorts of things that we have to discuss as Christians. The idea that we look up to leaders as if they are God and that the only time we get into the text is when the leader is telling us three hours, perhaps on a Sunday morning, what the text actually says. Mm. We have abdicated our responsibilities as Uh, intelligent and thoughtful and pious people to Mm. other people. And in so doing, we have misunderstood what Paul actually means for every single individual who is in the body of Christ. Taking us to church today, Diana. It's good stuff. I mean, yeah, we we need to get back because I think that the point of our discussion is not necessarily to trash her book or critique her Uh, Beyond repair. But I think our responsibility is to encourage people to live out their Christian calling well. Right? We're not encouraging um, people to kind of just think about it for a minute and then put it off because. Weeks coming, and we have a like we are actually called to live out what it means to be Christian every single day of our lives. And the instructions that we have in the text are given to us because the Creator knows best what is necessary for us to order in order to live the type of communal life that He wants us to live. It's very difficult in our modern day society to recreate the conditions, there's no way that we can recreate the conditions of the First century world, but there are values that we need to imbibe and that we need to resurrect and that we need to live by, if we are to fulfill what God would have us to fulfill as a people who belong to Him.
1: Yeah, and it's it's so disheartening to see some of the bait and switch here because you just th- I, I'm just yeah. thinking about those Christians who are just really getting all of their Bible information from. And listen, we do it, it, that happens on both sides of the aisle. You know, there are there are Christians who don't read the Bible, the, even conservative Christians who don't read the Bible for themselves. And so their interpretations of everything is going to just be whatever their pastor's is. And that's irresponsible as yeah. Christians. But I'm just thinking about the person reading this and going, oh, wow. I mean, the Samaritan woman was a leader. Mary of Bethany was a leader. Martha was a leader. What have we gotten wrong now? And And you can see how that— that could really deceive someone into thinking, oh, it's really just this modern complementarian thing that has right. come along to oppress women because it really just has to be noted that, uh, again, Samaritan woman was not the leader of anything. Mary of Bethany was not in charge of anyone. No. Martha no. was not in charge of anyone. There, there's no. there's no leadership there. Now, what is cool and what I love about the scripture, and you've done so much work in this area, and maybe this is a good, good place to sort of land the plane here, is that Paul and Jesus were very countercultural about their views of women, very very much elevated women, um, if you look around what was going on in culture. And that's something we should celebrate. That's something—but I think for what I think the conflation gets made with books like this is that there's a, an assumption underneath it that different role means— different value and, and that's down. that's yeah. false because I even think about I um, see I don't know I just think it's beautiful that God made men and women different from everything from I think sort of um, internal immaterial aspects to our bodies he made us different and that is beautiful because if you think about the fact that our bodies all by themselves have a complete circulatory system, a complete nervous system, all by themselves. They don't, I don't need anybody else to help my nervous system work if, you know, if everything's working properly. But I only have one half of a reproductive system. It actually takes someone of the opposite sex to come together to make a complete reproductive system. And what does that say about the importance of both men and women when it comes to the family, society, the life of what a child Absolutely. needs. And those things are going to be different. But we've fallen for, I think, the feminist uh, assumptions that in dif- differences equal mean inequality or that right. we somehow have made men, the st- whatever men do is the standard of good and we have to do all those things. But you don't see men. Well, I guess you're starting to see it now, men wanting to say they can have babies, but that's not even (laughs) men doing that. It's, you know, it's such a confusion. (laughs) You don't see men protesting in the streets for the right to nurse a baby or, I mean, when God has really given women the responsibility of raising all the future men. I mean, that's incredibly high value placed on women.
0: Yeah, and I think, too, that it's also symptomatic of the ways that we have allowed culture to dictate what we value, Mm. right? So the pushback against what we're referring to as social rules, the pushback comes because we have devalued the rules and no one wants to feel devalued. But there Mm. was a time (laughs) when it was very valued to be a woman, where it was very valued to be a man, where it was very valued to understand that the different strengths and weaknesses of both came together to make society what it is. We just, we don't value it the same way. And because we don't value it the same way, we denigrate the role. Mm. Um, I think it was um, Margaret Mead, and I'm paraphrasing here, Margaret Mead was a a prominent uh, anthropologist used in, in sociological circles as well. Margaret Mead said that in order for any human society to thrive and survive, that society has to come to terms with a social life that takes into account the differences between the sexes. Mm. If we have a social unit, a community, a society that doesn't take those roles um seriously in their distinction and in their importance that society will break down
1: mm.
0: and i think that we see the beginnings of that yes we um, do th- yeah we see the beginnings of that i think that our devaluation of men and our devaluation of the roles that they play, our devaluation of women and the roles that they play, those are the things, the devaluation that has sparked this whole controversy with complementary and, and egalitarianism. But if we can get back to the place where God intended, where we affirm these values, then these things will work themselves out. Where it actually becomes um it becomes a situation where we don't find status in our job. Mm-hmm. or we don't find status in our careers, or we don't find status in our titles, but we find status in the differences that God intended. It's a it's a value transformation, I think, at the end of the day that God is calling us to, that we value the things that he values and that we not value the things that he doesn't value. And we don't get our cues from society when it comes to evaluation.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, the one thing I'd love to acknowledge, too, I know we kind of have, but I just want to make the circle back around and make the point again. And I want to say this very clearly. Complementarianism has been abused in certain scenarios. Yes. 100%. We acknowledge that. There is real misogyny or uh, chauvinism might be the word. Um, I've seen that manifest. But… I don't believe that complementarianism causes that. I believe sin in the hearts of people causes that. Go back to Genesis Mm -hmm. 3. Read Mm -hmm. about the fall. There's going to be tension between Mm -hmm. the sexes because of the fall. And we are going to see that and that we are going to see abuses of that. And we would both, I'm sure, uh, stand against the abuse of of a good doctrine absolutely but that doesn't mean the doctrine is wrong if everybody's obeying if everybody's doing everybody flourishes and it's when they're you know that those the sinful inclinations get in there and take over that men could use those verses to um to in very real ways oppress women for sure absolutely
0: absolutely and that happens um that happens across all spectrums, that it happens economically, that happens racially, that happens on the basis of sex, that happens on the basis of complexion, that happens on the basis of whatever, you name it, oppression happens. But as you've rightly said, We have to be concerned with what the Bible is teaching as an ideal and strive towards that. The Bible at no time, Paul, Jesus, at no time encourage us to strive for the ideal of oppression. But we're also um, very cognizant of the fact that we're to strive for the ideal of unity in the body of Christ, where every part of the body is necessary for the full functioning of the body. The hand is not better than the foot. The ear is not better than the eye. Men are not better than women. Children are not better than than mothers. All of it is so that we might come into the unity that we are given in Christ and so that we might reflect God in the earth as we live day to day. Well put. Any
1: final thoughts you want to leave us with today? Uh, just all, it could be about the book or about just this
0: topic. What? I'll give you the last word here. Yeah, I just think that it is responsible for all believers to know what the Bible teaches. Um, I am heartened by a lot of the conversations that I have with, with women uh, who just want to learn more, who want to know more, who want to be able to defend better, who want to be able to ground their theological beliefs. That is the life of a believer. The life of a believer is not the type of life where we abdicate our responsibilities to other people, Um And I'm heartened by the people who follow your ministry. I'm heartened by the people who want to pursue truth and want to pursue godliness. And I'm heartened by the ways in which we understand that God wants us to be people who know him and not about him or of him, but know him. And that comes through his word. Good. Diana, where can people connect with you online? All that stuff. Sure, I've I can give you my email address. I can always be contacted him at chasing him at yahoo.com. Um, there's no spaces between that. Chasing him at yahoo.com.
1: Okay, great. Well, I want to thank my guest, Diana Williams. Great discussion. If you're watching on YouTube, again, click subscribe and that bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video. If you're listening on audio platforms, it always helps if you leave a five-star review. And of course, share this post with your friends who might be helped by it. Clicking like and commenting on social media always helps get those algorithms going. Thanks so much for watching and we'll see you next time.